0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Bob Brown. Bob is an environmentalist, a giant of the conservation movement, and was the leader of the Australian Greens. In a wide-ranging and in-depth conversation, Bob reflects on his life of activism, protest, and deep personal connection with nature including the giant native trees of Tasmania, as depicted in an inspiring new documentary, The Giants. The film interweaves Bob's life story with the life cycle of the ancient trees he is fighting for. In this conversation, Bob talks about a wide range of conservation and environment issues, both past and present. Bob gives us his wise advice about those who care deeply about the environment. If you'd like to hear the two songs that Bob Brown referenced in our interview and that I played on air after the chat, please see the links in the podcast description for both If I Had a Hammer by Peter, Paul and Mary and Little Boxes by Peter Seeger. It is my true delight and pleasure to welcome back onto this program, Dr. Bob Brown, Bob is a conservationist, an environmentalist and former leader of the Australian Greens. He now heads up the Bob Brown Foundation, which is doing some amazing work campaigning for the Tarkine, among many other environmental issues. The last time we had the great pleasure of speaking with Bob was in September 2019, before the pandemic. So it's really exciting to speak with Bob today to talk about a really vital film, which is called The Giants. If you're not inspired by this film, what will inspire you to action? Because I think I probably teared up about 10 times at least watching it. <laughs> it was so moving. It's directed by Lawrence Billier and Rachel Anthony. It features Bob Brown and, as the credits say, the main protagonists and key stars of the movie are Bob Brown, Eucalyptus regnans in the Styx Valley, the Huon Pines in Tasmania's southern forests, and Tasmanian Myrtles in the Tarkine. So it's a huge star-studded lineup, including many other supporting acts as well. Welcome back onto the show, Bob Brown.
1: G'day, Amy, it's great to be with you. Great to be back on Triple R.
0: Ah, it's a pleasure to have you on this great station I know on my show at least we talk about native forest logging all the time and it's one of those main things that you say at the end of the film that you want to see end in Australia for good. And, of course, we get to know the beautiful environment, of the stunning trees in Tasmania. So I wanted to, I guess, start out with that to talk about the main players in this film. We'll talk about you, but I wanted to talk about those other Key stars, those three amazing tree types that are featured throughout the film, and your relationship to them, how you perceive them, and what drives you to protect them.
1: Well, along with the great redwoods on the west coast of North America, they're the biggest living things ever on the face of the planet. They're much bigger than blue whales, and um, we still aren't able to untap some of their mystery. Like, for example, how they pump water up 100 metres. And as the scientist says in the film, if you try to do that by vacuuming the water, uh, sucking it up, it would boil at 10 metres. And yet the film shows how these trees aren't alone. They're part of a community. They're interrelating with each other. And not only that, the fungi and the ferns and so much else, And, and of course the wildlife as well in these forests. Just amazing. And... Going back to your introduction, most Australians want them protected. and That includes the Eucalyptus regnans, that's Latin for king of the eucalypts, which um, really has its stronghold in Victoria, where there's only 1% of them left. They're threatened with fires as well as logging. It's incredible. The tallest tree ever actually measured on the planet, 134 metres in length, was in these Victorian forests. And now there's youngsters there over 80 metres high growing back into that sort of dimension. And we've got state and federal governments subsidising logging industry to go in and destroy them. But look at the opinion polls. Most coalition voters, even more Labour voters, and over 90% of the Green voters want that stopped. And what's going on here? Well, this decrepit industry, which has lost most of its employees in the last 20 years because it became so big, automated and export woodchip oriented are making a bit of money out of it Uh, it's appalling it should be stopped and it will be stopped because there's so many people on the move against it you know my relationship with it is is um, not just physical because our bodies are uh, are shaped by our origins in the forest but of course we all relate to it everybody loves seeing big trees and forests and, and the flowers and in the forest and the wildlife that's in there. It's a spiritual uplift for us all and it gives us an adventure. So why would you want to destroy something that's so important just to the well-being of our own species and all the more so as we go on to a future where less and less forests are going to be on the planet with more and more people?
0: Yeah, it's so well said I know that um, Professor David Lindenmeyer Works a lot with those eucalypts In the Central Highlands And it's something that we love talking about Because it's so close to Melbourne Anyone can easily drive out there within an hour And be amongst these towering giants
1: He's just a champion And of course he's in this film His voice is Along with uh, so many other people David Suzuki And um, so many other wise people Who know about these trees And this unfolding saga of how the forest is a community. It's not a, a, a series of individual competing. And the in, Indigenous voice that comes in with it there, with Teresa Sainty, it's so well put together. So congratulations to the filmmakers. And when they asked me about it, I, you know, I thought about it. I'm not much for looking back. <laughs> I'm very much for one for looking forward and to uh, the future come on Albanese government you be the ones that stopped native forest logging in Australia like a labor government did in New Zealand over 20 years ago so that's on the, on the drawing board and won't they get a great lift out of it if they achieve that and people will love it they'll vote for it
0: Yeah, so, so true. And they were voting for the environment in the last election because obviously a lot of those teal candidates were running on climate platforms and environment, among other things, but that was certainly a main thing, integrity and the climate and the environment. So I hope that in the next election it really does become even more prominent than it was at the last and that we see some of the other voices getting into parliament as well, just like you first did, becoming, you know, the first Greens in in federal parliament.
1: Yes, well, we had a couple of Greens from Western Australia in there earlier. I was the first Australian Green and the first one from Tasmania, uh, Jo Valentine being the first one, um, and she was standing against all four nuclear disarmament and was elected uh, back in the 80s, actually. But it's, it's a great privilege to be in the Parliament, but this is a move which is not going to stop. And we saw 30% of people voting away from the big parties At the last election, it is going to increase. We will see more teals. We saw a record vote for the Greens. There's 16 of them in the National Parliament now. If you had proportional representation, a fairer voting system like they got in Europe and New Zealand, there'd be many more of them in the lower house. But the the government there needs to be wary because it's a 33% vote government. That's what Labor got. And the environment, along with social justice, are the issues that are going to determine future voting. They better get out from under the pressure of the mega-rich who want to keep exploiting things, make a stand for the ordinary Australians who want to keep this country and its natural realm, including its oceans in Antarctica, much like it is now for the future. Not more coal mines, gas mines, more coral bleaching, more drying out, droughts, more mega bushfires and so on. So the people are on the move about this. The question is... Can the old parties respond? The answer so far is not looking good.
0: Mm, mm. I do remember on election night that everyone kind of had this shocked look on their face at how well the Greens did in Queensland. And, you know, they were so close in other areas as well. Do you feel heartened by that recent result for the Greens, especially in some of those areas where grassroots campaigning took over and, and obviously was very successful?
1: I love it. You know, it it fills me with hope because that's the one voice that's standing in the federal parliament now against new coal mines and, and gas fracking. There's a, a, a couple of teals also, but really the outcome there we can't, um, we, we can't know, but we do know this. If the Greens weren't in there, there would be no debate. It would simply be a open card for opening every fossil fuel project that the exploiters want and destroying more forests and bigger fisheries, robbing the krill out of Antarctica, which is the staple food for the whales and penguins and so down there, For what? For some cosmetics and, and to feed some fish farms. Come on. We as a human community are wiser than that and our politicians had better start listening to the people.
0: It's interesting you bring up the oceans because obviously this, this film is about trees a lot of the time, but not just that. And you talked about krill, and I know that that's something that Bob Brown Foundation as well as the Sea Shepherd have been working together on. And obviously it's very concerning around the conservation, not only of those animals and biodiversity on land, but in the ocean. The kind of things that we don't see as individual citizens every day that aren't necessarily front of mind, perhaps because we're not out in the ocean, you know, surrounded by seals and whales and penguins. How do you see the way that conservation is now approached in the 21st century and the ways that you're doing activism at the Bob Brown Foundation to draw people into some of these issues, which certainly can be a challenge to galvanise sentiment and and action around?
1: Well, two thirds of the planet is ocean and it's warming faster than um, ever before in history. We know about the death of the coral reef, and that's going to... um, We're going to see, unfortunately, massive more death of coral reefs in the coming years as the El Nino kicks back in because of the increased clout coming from burning fossil fuels and forests. But the oceans, uh, we depend on them. We depend on them for our weather. We depend on them for our nutrients. Most people don't know that the North Atlantic gets its nutrients from Antarctica, let alone know that these wonderful whales and creatures we see going up the coast, the Baleen whales, depend on krill. And Camelar, the safeguarder, the international safeguarder for Antarctica and its oceans, centred here in Hobart, is licensing these massive ships to go down there and with big vacuum cleaners take the krill out of the baseline of the you know the food chain. So what environmentalists have got to do are two things. One is alert the world to what's going on there. And scientists are incredibly important and need to, like David Linden might, need to speak out about it. But the second thing is not to accept that these powerful entities making decisions behind closed doors is enough. We've got to get out of our comfort zone. And that's why we've had Alastair Allen through our foundation with Judge Shepherd going down to get pictures of the, this krill fishing and bring it back to people because we can only work on how we're informed. But to take action as we're doing in the Tarkine, but uh, and that means getting in the way of the destroyers because we have to abide by the laws of nature, not just the invented laws of the big corporations.
0: Yeah, there's a a big racket there in terms of how things have gone and the way that the scales have now been tipped in favour of big business and companies. And clearly they've tipped very much away from the rights of the protester. And that is something that comes up at the end of the film is the discussion about the anti-protest laws, not just in Tasmania, but as you say, in many other states around the country, including here in Victoria, where very much environmentalists in particular are targeted. And as we saw in New South Wales, climate protesters as well. When you're reflecting on your time as a protester, because obviously you've had so many varied experiences across the years, how do you see the rights of the protester having evolved in the way that protest is conducted?
1: Well, the rights of the peaceful protesters has been devolved. And um, in one case, after being arrested in the forest here, we took it and and, uh, marvellous barristers from Melbourne took it to the High Court and the High Court by six to one judges said peaceful protest is the right of everybody in a representative democracy. But we've got governments, as you say, in several states not only uh, reducing that right, but criminalising peaceful protesters. And we've seen that with the arrest of people, as you say, in New South Wales and in Victoria and in the forest. And here in Tasmania, they now move laws which would criminalize an organization like my foundation. That simply backs peaceful protesters. They're coming to deregister organisations with, and the reason for that, Amy, is because they can't win the environmental argument. And this comes out of America and has been imported to Australia. So you have to take out the environmentalists. So what do you do? You get weak spine politicians to pass legislation, and similar legislation in Britain, America, and here, you can see the a way in which the mega-rich corporations. Are handing this around and take the environmentalists, particularly the more outspoken ones, off to jail so that they can't be heard anymore. It goes against human decency. And you would think that our politicians are intelligent, you would think they'd make a better stand against that than they have so far. So it's up to us to create about it so they reverse those laws and we get back to being a decent society in which, as with the suffragettes, people who are are protesting for good changes in society are allowed to flourish.
0: Yeah, it's particularly disappointing when it's both Liberal and Labor doing this as well and and basically being waved through Parliament with barely any debate, that it barely even registered in the public discussion.
1: Tweedledum and Tweedledee at the the behest of The uh, the behind-the-scenes corporate lobbyists, that's one reason why our organisation is just advertising at the moment for a lobbyist in Canberra, because we realise that if you're not at the table, you're having the rug pulled from under you. And so there isn't a full-time environmental lobbyist in Canberra, but there's dozens for logging and mining and coal and gas and so on, and Antarctic fisheries for that matter. So... We we need to even up that case, but the most important thing of the lot is how people vote, and we're all equal in that, and we have to exercise our vote. There's one guide to exercising the vote. Are our grandchildren going to thank us for the way we vote? That's so important.
0: That's an excellent point. Bob, in the film, and there are so many experts, as you say, amazing voices in this film, one of the international voices is David Suzuki. And towards the end of the film, he was saying, you know, that there's now this kind of pyramid structure where we think we're at the top of the tree and we don't realize just how interconnected we are and reliant on the environment and nature around us. It brought me back to the start of the film, where as a young man, you were saying, we shouldn't make it all plastic and concrete. That there was this, for you as a younger person, a strong connection with the environment that you were saying that. You know there's no problem that couldn't be solved by spending an afternoon outside in nature looking at the flowers and that was one of the points which got me a little bit teary because it is very very true and it made me kind of reflect on your life and the span of your life and the way that you had your own kind of personal relationship to the environment and how you might have seen it running in parallel with the way that humanity has further expanded its industrialization further embedded this hierarchical structure of man dominating nature whereas you know at the start you seem to be really at one with nature you know seeing that this was part of you so I don't know I just wondered if you had some reflections on the different dynamics that you've seen either personally your relationship to nature but also that overarching societal dynamic that's been playing a part throughout your life
1: yeah well the connection with nature is is in all of us it, it just can't be taken out of us because we come from nature and, and our bodies and souls are shaped by it. But, you know, I'm, one of the advantages of being nearly eight decades on this planet is I was around in the early 60s when the flower power occurred and songs like um, If I Had a Hammer and uh, Little Boxes and, and uh, so on. But to clobber this movement for a fairer world and an environmentally safe world, The big powers that be who want to exploit it for themselves in their own time and let the devil take the next generations, moved in and legislated away people's rights and um, legislated in favour of the corporates. Abraham Lincoln, way back in the 1850s, warned that the corporations were coming to take over democracy. That wasn't in the film about him, by the way. They left that little comment out, but he did and he was right. And we are now got to get the balance back. We've got to get the lobbyists out of Parliament House and we've got to get the, the, the parliamentarians responding to people. And it's in the air again. Young people, as we're talking, they're up there in the Tarkine. They're in the Victorian forests, They're up at Bulga and the Atari in New South Wales. They're over in Western Australia where they're wanting to mine 9,000 hectares more of the southwest forest for strip mining uh, for minerals, you know, and around the world. And sadly, just last year, nearly 200 environmentalists were murdered in less safe bases than Australia. But the tide of environmentalism is growing, and it's growing rapidly. And it's an idea whose time has come, and it will not be stopped. They can do what they like. And that gives me great heart, you know. as uh, <laughs> My, my think, feeling is, as my turn comes to step up for a footway of life, At this end of it, these bright-eyed young women and men I see stepping onto the foot at the other end are just inspiring. So the dynamic is right. Did you know at the last election, more people under the age of 24 voted for the Greens than voted for the Coalition in Australia? And that's the dynamic. Sure, more people over 50 voted for the Coalition by a long shot, but the dynamic is in the right direction. And um, those people who are hanging on to power at the moment have better look at it and change or they'll be out.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I anecdotally can at least see that. Even among my peers who are millennials and not the Gen Z generation, even the higher net worth individuals that vote in Green. So it's uh, it crosses all types of people across all demographics, which must be such an exciting thing for you to see how much of a mass appeal the Green movement, especially that conservationist and environmental message, is, you know, cutting through.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, there'll be mistakes made along the road and we'll get the Murdoch media immediately pouncing on top of that. doesn't matter. I keep going back to the suffragettes. They put up with so much including other women, remonstrating mm. with them and quoting the Bible to them and so on and so on. But they, they, they prevailed and eventually they made the world better for all of us. And it's the same with the uh, social justice movements, but not least the environment movement now. Our only question is how quick we can bring this forward because the destruction is awesome and it's increasing you only got to look at the United Nations climate warning coming again this week that we have to end all coal mining and gas fracking. We've got to move much faster than uh, governments are wanting to, or we're going to lose it. How would it be a three metre sea level rise with business as usual by the end of, as by kids who, uh, when they get to my age, it's not conscionable and it has to be ch- turned around. And uh, thank goodness. We have Greens in Parliament who are making a stand on it.
0: Bob, I know you say you don't like looking back all that much, but that that is part of the film. And I think it's so great to see your life and how different moments in your life have changed you, have reflected bigger movements in Australia, political and environmental movements. And um, I wanted to, I guess, reflect on some of your observations, your personal observations, and also your twin sisters, who is delightful as well. And, you know, she was pointing out that you were both very shy children, that you were also very much intelligent, which you can tell. And you kind of also reflect in the film that when you were first advocating, you didn't necessarily want to because it was kind of you front and centre and it looked like it was all about you. But then you realised, actually, no, I'm speaking for the trees. And, and that's one way to gain your confidence. Could you talk to us a little bit about where that confidence came from
1: Yes, you know, I've I've been nervous all through my life and I think other people need to know that because that confidence which is there in amongst the exploiters, they know what is right. They're laying down the law for everybody else has got to be faced up to. And that Bertrand Russell dictum about, you know, the the trouble with the world is that the the stupid are cocksure but the intelligent are full of self-doubt. Well, get over it, intelligent people. And I learnt that it was very, very slow and it was very difficult in the early years of the Franklin campaign in particular. But even the first speech in Parliament, you know, uh, in the Senate, and now I'm well into middle age, I didn't sleep the night before. And you think, why is this happening? Well, it's just because we're reticent and uh, forbearing. But the problem is if you don't overcome that, well, the, the wreckers rule the roost and this is the extraordinary thing is that in politics the heartless get to the top fastest because they don't care about treating on the faces and the fingers of others And that's why I think it's so wonderful that we are seeing the greens and the teals and but more particularly a more diverse makeup of people getting into politics not least women long way to go but that's incredibly important you know I jumped the fence and gave a talk in 1976 in Launceston about how it's time women ruled the world instead of men. Right. T- only silence, no questions, and I jumped the fence and got on my bicycle and rode away thinking, "Oh, gee, you hit a wrong note there, Bob. But here it is. It's coming about. And, you know, you can't be glib and, and um, say, oh, no, this, this is better than that. It, it's complicated. But the better side of human nature, I think the advantage here is long-sightedness. All the opinion polls show that women support saving forests and actually voting green more than, than men. Well, we men have drawn the short straw there and um, go women because we need long sided people in politics. It's as simple as that. And my advice to people is just don't think about voting. Think about standing. And if you're reticent, that's a sign that you're going to be a good member of parliament. It's the people who think, I know I'm going to be good, I'm going to make decisions here for everybody else without thinking about it, who are the wrong kind. And of course, they're they're legion in Parliament. We need more reflective people and kind people and considerate people who are thinking long-term about coming generations getting into Parliament. And the trend is in that direction. It's a good trend.
0: Well, the fact that you're still advocating for people to join the parliament must mean that it's an important thing to do because we saw at the end of the film just how brutal a time it was under the Gillard minority government. And, you know, you were reflecting on the critical support that you had from your partner, Paul, who obviously grounded you in a really beautiful way. And I'm sure everyone in parliament must have a hopefully a a good support network. But when you're reflecting on your time in federal parliament and just how intense it was, and I mean, one of the scenes plays out in the film where you're interjecting during President George Bush's speech. I mean, being a shy person, that must have been a pretty big deal. How do you characterize your time there and, and the cut and thrust of federal politics?
1: Yes, with George Bush, my heart was pounding. It was almost... Uh, coming out of my chest, but I knew that if I didn't get to my feet, I'd I've lost an opportunity and I'd feel bad about it very often because it did need that uh, illegal invasion of Iraq and the incarceration of Australians in Guantanamo Bay didn't need speaking up about. But that said, um, I think that it's a fantastic privilege to be in Parliament. You don't have to just uh, judge what other people bring. You can bring in your own legislation, and I did, for freedom of information, for death with dignity, for getting rid of battery chooks, getting free-range eggs, you know, for a whole range of things with forever innovating and bringing in things, and so do my colleagues. And I see that happening with the teals. Um, one's got a, a bill into the lower house of the federal parliament to end native forest logging. This is great. This is diversity and People who might think that they can't put up with the heat in the kitchen, but I think they should test themselves out about it. We've got an inner reserve when we know that we're paving the way for a better society that's um, quite untapped, but, gee, it's strong. And you get to mix with other people who are like-minded. And that you're right, that support network, and in my case, having Fabulous companion in uh, Paul Thomas is critically important. But, you know, we're a good-hearted society. John Howard might have taken away our motto of a fair go. It'll come back. This country is full of wonderful and lovely people, and more of them in Parliament is going to make us what we potentially could be, and that's a world leader. Uh, you know, and I think even spending four hundred million dollars on a, a global catastrophe center, so we're the first to help Pakistan with the floods, or we're over to help in the drought in in Africa, or we're helping with the tsunami in the Pacific, straight out and and offset and helping to prevent these from happening would be a fantastic outcome. We haven't quite, you know, we're putting the money into submarines instead of that, but we could do it, and we could be a global leader in setting the pattern for humankind and for life on this planet. And Australians would back it. The leadership is not there yet, but let's hope it's coming.
0: I have a couple of other questions before we finish up, Bob. One of the very interesting scenes to me, actually, was the footage of you sitting up in a tent at Mount Wellington in 1976. Oh, yeah. yeah, looking at the USS Enterprise, a US Navy ship, nuclear ship, coming in into Tasmania. And I wasn't aware of this. And obviously, I wasn't around. But it did also bring me back to now because we're talking about nuclear submarines storing nuclear waste in Australia, it was all but just signed off overnight practically by both parties. And that shift into an area which I think the environmental movement must have thought was off limits, you know, it was kind of cordoned off. And now we're there, we're ever encroaching into A nuclear area. And I just wondered if you had reflections having been part of that movement and really at the very start talking about nuclear and protesting and fasting and, you know, making a stand about nuclear technology and weaponry.
1: Yes. Well, Amy, at at that time, and as I say in the film, that ship was banned from going into New York and Boston because of the danger of, of a potential nuclear accident and because it brought with it targeting from the Russians who had an equally sized nuclear arsenal but here they were welcoming it into Hobart because it was going to bring two million dollars profit to local businesses and quote-unquote plane loads of party girls were being flown down from Sydney to entertain the sailors so wasn't this a great thing? I didn't think so and I don't think so now but here we are being gazumped on that because there was a very strong move to make Hobart nuclear-free and Tasmania and of course New Zealand is What's going to happen with these submarines? Are we, we're now going to strain relationships with New Zealand. Are people going to have a say on whether nuclear submarines in the future? And they are going to be directed from America and UK as well as Australia. This is a, a, an integrated force they're looking at here. We're losing our independence as a nation. And we're creating problems for the future which haven't been thought out. I believe we should be able to strongly defend ourselves but I don't think this is the right way to do it and uh, I was delighted to see a, a wonderful article about that by Geraldine Brooks who was a, a journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald and, um, and with the age back in the Franklin campaign now writing again in, in the Sydney Morning Herald about this with the wisdom of her years saying it isn't the right way for Australia to be going and uh, I I think... We're going to be in turmoil over that decision for decades and decades to come.
0: Yeah. Bob, you have been out there protesting a lot recently. And, you know, the swift parrot, for example, is one of those endangered species you've been campaigning on behalf of, among many others. And, It did make me kind of reflect on the conservation movement of old the way that so many people i know here in victoria for example are still committed to protecting you know the whales the migratory birds etc and it brought home i guess a kind of tension i noticed between some of the climate policies where for example there's proposed offshore renewables near waratah bay and wilson's promontory and the concerns of the conservation movement around, you know, migratory birds and pods of whales actually going through those areas and how the sound of turbines might affect them. And it seems that there's been set up this false conflict between the climate movement and the conservationists. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they support each other. So I wondered if you had any reflections on that, how we can make sure that we're tackling climate change sensitively maintaining the environment and you know, installing new renewable energy whilst also protecting endangered species and ensuring that they're not negatively impacted?
1: Yeah, it's case by case. And we've got the same with the Robbins Island wind farm in northwest Tasmania, which is right on top of one of the most important bird breeding, sure bird breeding. So with a big list of critically endangered and endangered birds that fly all the way to Alaska and back each year. And, um, and the public being asked to pay $3.5 billion for a, a mariners line across to Victoria because we can't compete with Victorian prices otherwise. But look, where is the exponent for energy efficiency in all this? I used to say that at the Senate doors and all the journalists would put their pens down immediately. It simply means turning off the light, being frugal, saving power. We could save lots of these stations from being built if we weren't so wasteful with the power that we've got. That's the first thing that needs to be said. But when it gets to wind farms and renewable energy and indeed solar farms, they're a good thing. They're much better than coal. But it, it has to be sensibly decided that there are some places which are no-go zones because nature, um, we are a dominant species all about making life easier for ourselves. But we've got to have a regard for the habitat of other species, including those marine species. And it isn't just renewable energy is good, so anything does. As with everything else, it needs to be regulated and common sense needs to be brought in. And if they don't know the impact of something, they shouldn't be doing it. And behind this is big money, including big offshore money. In the case of Robbins Island, it's based in the Philippines, which wants to simply get public subsidies to create new renewable energy to make money. It's not to save the planet. That's where governments come in. They should be properly regulating this, not just giving a, a, a sale through pass to every big developer who comes along. And so, yes, I'd be concerned about that. And I think very easy, uh, well, I've had this myself, you know, very easy for the media to say, oh, there's an environmentalist opposing renewable energy. Well, the Franklin campaign was opposing renewable energy and Lake Pedder should have been saved. Mm -hmm. That's so-called renewable energy. This is not new. It's a case-by-case thing where you only allow energy production to go where it's going to be least harmful to the environment and we all need to pull our belts in on the road. This isn't an endless energy supply world we're in. It isn't an endless, we can have every goods, we can go to Harvey Norma's and get what we like and it doesn't matter. Come on, we've got to be a bit more thoughtful about the people coming after us if we want to keep this planet as it is. And that means not impacting on wildlife habitats any further than we've done.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for that response, Bob. That really means a lot to me to hear your nuanced view on it. When we last spoke, you said, don't get depressed, get active. And it's still stuck in my head now. If you wanted someone to take something away from this film or even just your experience, your life experience, what would it be?
1: It is that. It's getting active, but everybody for their own. If it just means backing up through the letter columns of the paper or by going to see the local MP, and remember that MP is not going to necessarily know about what the wind palm's impact is going to be or about what the coal mine's doing over there or what's happening with the Tarkai rainforest in Tasmania, Go along and explain it all. Our local MPs, this is a democracy again, and they're not well-informed on every issue because they're just ordinary human beings. But go along, be friendly, um, talk to them, and um, uh, impress them with the need for them to be part of uh, saving this planet instead of allowing it to go to hell in a handbasket. But above all, look after yourself. And I say this to young people, you know, It's no good being unhappy about everything. You go to uh, parties. You finish your degree. You travel. You find a good companion. And if the worst comes to the worst, even you go shopping. You know, um, life's long and you mustn't be too despairing. It's logical to look at the world and get depressed about it, but then look after yourself. And one of the best ways of doing that is becoming active in whatever form with other like-minded people. It's a soul to our own souls. I know that from my own experience and I'm just lucky to be at this end of life, not only have a good companion, but be surrounded by other people who are thinking, Yes, we've got to change this and we will change it.
0: Yeah, we will. Thank you so much for your wise words, Bob. It really means a lot to me. Uh Yeah, I've just been speaking with Bob Brown. Please go ahead and see this wonderful documentary called The Giants. It's in cinemas on April 20 out through Madman Films and I've just been speaking with Bob Brown, environmentalist, conservationist, former leader of the Australian Greens, who now heads up the Bob Brown Foundation. Thank you so much, Bob.
1: Thank you, Amy, and all the best for the future.
0: And you. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.